0: we would like to open your Bibles to the book of Job. We're going to be looking at Job chapter 31, 1 through 40, so the whole chapter this morning. And this will mark the end of Job's speeches. And then all we have left is the Aliving speeches and God speaking. And then, of course, the epilogue in chapter 42. So this marks a corner that we're turning. And if you're just joining us for the first time, you're welcome to go back and review some of the, the messages given so far it's difficult to jump in right in the middle of a sermon series especially when um, the pulpit ministry consists of expository preaching chapter by chapter and then on top of that we're in Job. so this is not narrative this is not where we can simply kick back and enjoy the story that's unfolding in front of us this is wisdom literature it's given to us in poetic form and there are a lot of deep conversations and interplay between the speakers, so it's difficult to just jump into. But for those of you who have been with us for the journey, or for the vast majority of the journey, thanks for sticking with it. I think the most benefit comes from from seeing the chapters laid out one after another. So we're going to be looking at Job 31, 1-40, 1-40, through 40, that's on page 437 of the ESV Pew Bibles and we're going to take the whole chapter and before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning and we ask that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that the reading and proclamation of this word would be accompanied by your blessing. We thank you for your holy and inspired word and we ask that you would give us spiritual sight, that we would not be like the Pharisees who saw but never were able to see and who heard but were never able to truly hear. Father, we want to see and hear the true meaning of this passage and we want to apply it we want to have that good soil response and, and not simply receive it momentarily and then discard it, but instead respond to it, hold fast to it, and put it into practice. So Father, that's our prayer as we come to your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greg often went to the local rec center after school because they had free open gym time for all students. And he was in high school. So he went to the rec center this particular day, and he spent about 45 minutes shooting hoops by himself and worked up a pretty good sweat and a thirst. So after he got done, he decided he could go get a cold drink at the vending machine. And so he went down out of the gym and turned the hall, and he could look down the hall, and he could see that the vending machine door was open, and it was being serviced by, by the vendor. And if he was loading bottles of of sports drinks and water and and pop into the machine. And so he he started down the hall. And as he started down, he was met by another student that looked a little bit older, maybe college-aged. And the student said, hey, they're giving away free drinks. And Greg said, really? And he said, yeah, look. And he held up, and he had two drinks in each hand about all that he could handle. And Greg said, oh, okay. So he continued on, and he, he approached the man, and he said... I'll take a couple of Gatorades for free if, if if you don't mind. And the man stopped what he was doing and he said, what? He said, I'll, I'll take a few Gatorades for free if you're giving them away. And the man just kind of shook his head and, and went back to his work and, and muttered under his breath, these ain't free, kid. And it was at that moment that Greg realized that he had been had, that, that he had been lied to. And he turned around and he looked back down the hall where he had come from and there was the oldest student standing with his three friends laughing and pointing at Greg because he had fallen for it. And at that moment Greg remembered something that his dad had told him, told him several times growing up. He said if something seems to be too, too good to be true it usually is. If, if something seems too good to be true it usually is. And Greg kicked himself for falling for that, for that trick and so for being so naive. And I think we all understand, and, and we've applied that in our lives, and we recognize situations where things seem too good to be true. For example, if you see a, a car or maybe a, a home for sale, and they're asking half of what it's worth, if they're asking 50% of the marketplace value, we don't run out and buy it. The first question we ask is, what's wrong with it? Why is it so cheap? If someone promises to, to give us a pill and, and they say, here, buy this product and you'll lose 20 pounds instantly. You don't have to change the way you eat and you don't have to exercise. No thanks. We're not falling for that one. If something seems too good to be true, it usually is. And in Job chapter 31, Job's final words seem too good to be true at times. In this chapter, Job is declaring his innocence with the strongest language possible. And at times, he appears to go too far. At times, the, it forces the reader to wonder if, if it isn't too good to be true. And it's only when we see chapter 31 in the immediate biblical context of chapters 28 through 31 that we see the full meaning. So when we look at the chapter this morning, we're going to accomplish two things. Number one, we're going to see how this chapter uh, displays and establishes the innocence of Job. It does that. It substantiates the claims that, that Job has been making all along. But at the same time, it goes above and beyond Job. And it points to someone greater. So let's read this. This is the entire chapter... Starting at verse one. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceive, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way, and my heart has gone after my eyes, and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat, and let what grows for me be rooted out. If my heart has been enticed toward a woman, and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another, and let others bow down on her. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges. For that would be a fire that consumes as far as a and it would burn to the root of all my increase. If I have rejected the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When He makes iniquity—excuse me—when He makes inquiry, what shall I answer Him? Did not He who made me in the womb make Him? And did that one fashion in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired, if I have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it from my, from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as with the father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, and if it was not warm with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless because I saw my help in the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder and let my arm be broken from its socket. For I was in terror of calamity from God, I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, or if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand has found much, If I have looked at the sun when it shone, or the moon moving in its splendor, and if my heart has been secretly enticed and my mouth has kissed my hand, this also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of him who hated me, or exulted when evil overtook him, I have not let my mouth sin by asking for his life with a curse. If the men of my tent have not said, Who is there that has not been filled with his meat? The sojourner has not lodged in the street. I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions, as others do, by hiding my iniquity in my heart, because I stood in great fear of the multitude and the contempt of families terrified me, so that I kept silence or did not go out of doors. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written up by my adversary. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder, I would mind it on me as a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me, and its furrows have wept, wept together, if I have eaten its yield without payment and made its owners breathe their last, let thorns grow instead of wheat, and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. Before we begin our verse by verse walk through, a couple of preliminary comments. You've probably heard this as we went through, but I want to point it out there are two components in chapter 31 that simply dominate the chapter. One is called a negative confession, and the other is called an oath of innocence. A negative, negative confession is when someone comes out and confesses the things they have not done. We know what a regular confession is. That's confessing to something we have done. A negative confession is coming out and saying, I have not done these things. And it's attested in extra-biblical literature, ancient literature, and here it is in Job. And it fits because, A, it's exactly what Job is doing. He's listing all the sins he did not commit. And then, B, he's doing this right before what he believes is his death. And in the extra-biblical literature, that's usually the context that negative confessions appear. It's, it's uh, for example, in Egyptian literature, part of their journey to the next life is they have to go through this judgment and they have to make negative confessions in hopes that the gods, little g, will allow them to experience the blessings of the afterlife. So Job believes this is it. He believes he's nearing the end of his life. And so he's making these negative confessions we also see something called an oath of innocence, and it follows a very easily identifiable pattern. If I have done this, then let this happen to me. And we've seen that over and over uh, as we read through it. You heard it repeatedly. You, you hear Job in verse 5, if I have walked with falsehood, verse 7, if I, my steps have turned aside. Verse 8, if my heart has been enticed towards a woman, and then we saw the other part of it. Verse 8, then let me sow in another E. Verse 10, then let my wife grind for another. So we see both the negative confession and the oath of innocence. And actually, the entire chapter is just one negative confession after another buttressed by these oaths of innocence. The strongest language possible used to declare his innocence. That is what chapter 31 is about. And again, why does he do this? Why now? Why are these the last words of Job? Because he believes these are the last words he's going to be able to say. These are the last words that he's going to be able to present to God and to his three friends. And he wants to go out declaring and maintaining his innocence. So we begin at the... With verses 1 through 4, the first thing that he makes a negative confession is lustful thoughts. Here's the first sin that Job has never committed, and it is lust. Now he's going to make another negative confession later on about adultery. So this isn't talking about the physical act. This is simply the inner thought life. And as we are well aware, lustful thoughts are sinful. Jesus said in Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it, there was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The key words there are with lustful intent. Looking at a woman, recognizing that a woman is beautiful in both form and appearance is not sinful. And the proper response when seeing a, a beautiful woman is saying, Praise God for making women beautiful and then move on to the next thing that God has called you to do. It's the looking at the woman and then pausing and starting to size her up and thinking, what would it be like? Types of thoughts. That, that's the sinful part. And Job is saying, I haven't done that. I have never done that. Verses 5-8, dishonest business practices. If I have walked with falsehood, if my foot is hastened to deceit, if my step is turned aside, all this language is kind of describing the same thing. Dishonesty or corrupt dealings that he's had as he's uh, bought and sold with other uh, uh, landowners or merchants or livestock owners, anyone he's, he's entered into an agreement with. And verse 8 has the the punishment that fits the crime when he says, then let me sow and another eat and let what grows for me be rooted out. In other words, let me fall into poverty if anything that I have has been gotten by deceitful practices. Let, let uh, Let my grain fall to the ground if I have robbed someone else of their grain. And then there's also that reference to a just balance. Job offers himself up to be weighed in a just balance. Now, of course, there are several ways to be deceitful in the ancient Near East, but one of the more common ways was to deceive someone in the the purchasing or the selling of of goods and services through dishonest weights. They would often have a scale, and they would weigh out um, silver or gold or, or whatever valuable pieces of money they had against a set of weights. and depending on if you were buying or selling, you could substitute your own set of weights and, and that were not quite up to the standard or, or maybe a little over the standard depending on if you were buying or selling so that you could pay a little less for what you were getting or you could receive a little more than what was agreed upon. There were other ways. Maybe you could be selling a, a herd of animals and you're, you're testifying to the, the health and the vitality of the flock and then you kind of sneak in a few uh, sickly animals or maybe a couple that are that has some defects or maybe uh, something wrong with with their legs or broken bones or something or maybe oil jars or wine jars anything where you've got large amounts and maybe the jar you bring out for inspection is completely full but some of the other jars in the back of the cart maybe aren't completely full Job is saying I haven't done that I have never cheated anyone I have never taken part in any sort of deceitful business practices Nine, twelve, uh, verses nine through twelve. Now we get to adultery. If I have lied in, if I'm lying in wait at a neighbor's door, that's, that's the, the language there. Lying in wait at a neighbor's door anticipates that the adulterer is waiting for, for the husband to go so they can then enter into the the dwelling. If I've done that, then let my wife be with another man. Grinding and bowing down are both references to uh, physical relations. And then verses 11 and 12, the judgment for such a sin would be great. And there's a reference to fire. Proverbs also compares adultery to fire and judgment. Proverbs six twenty-seven and 29 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes in to his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. A fire that consumes as far as a bad and bad means destruction, and that's a fitting word and a fitting reference for the consequences of adultery. A fire that consumes, it destroys, causes pain and all kinds of destruction. It causes relational pain. It causes spiritual pain. It causes uh, household pain. It destroys trust, and often children, as a result of adultery, have their their home life permanently altered. It's never quite the same without both parents. Um, in my ministry, I've only seen it happen once where uh, there's been marital unfaithfulness and then the marriage ends up uh, you know, re- restored fully. Usually, and more often than not, when there's marital unfaithfulness, it ends up in divorce. And Job is saying, no, I haven't done that. I have not been unfaithful. Household management is the next section, 13 through 15. He's talking about how he's acted fairly among his household servants. So this is talking about his manservants, his maidservants. Job and his household would have been exceedingly large. Remember, this was the greatest man in all the East. He had much property, uh, many possessions, many herds and flocks, and all these things required management. So he had lots of uh, manservants and maidservants. And Job is saying, look, if someone has come to me in my household and they've come with a legitimate complaint, I have listened. If they come to me and they, they have a complaint about the, the distribution of food or about uh, their lodging or something like that or about some kind of practice that they see is wrong or, or some kind of, something that needs to be fixed, he said, I've listened and I've taken action when appropriate. If the situation is warranted, I have have done something about it. And Job knows that God will hold him accountable if he treats his uh, servants differently than anyone else. Uh, Verse 15 talks about how are we not all equal before God? Yes, Job recognizes the inherent worth and equality of personhood among all peoples, no matter what their occupation, no matter what um, their status is from, from king to beggar. Job says, No, God made us all, and we're all equal, and I'm going to treat everyone equally. Now keep in mind, this is in a day, an age where it was very easy for someone of high status or wealth to get away with treating people differently or unfairly. And Job says, No, I haven't done that. I've never done that. Negative confession. Verses 16-23, through 23, the poor, widows, and orphans. Job insists that he has been fair and open-handed to all widows, all orphans, and to the poor. He did not mistreat them. Verse 17, he gave them food. Verse 19, he gave them clothing. And verse 21, he was an advocate for the fatherless. He talks about raising his hand against them. This is a reference to some sort of judicial action. Remember, I think it was a, a week or two ago, we talked about um, the city gate, and this is where the elders gathered, and this is where all business transactions took place. He went to the city gate. It was kind of like a, a courtroom, uh, records office, um, uh, a ju- place of judicial bank, um, uh, all, all these kind of official things, city hall, wrapped up into one. And Job is saying, no, I have not raised my hand against anyone unfairly, because again, very easy in the ancient Near East for someone with a lot of influence and power and wealth to even though it was technically okay, they could raise their hand and, and make an oath and, and accuse someone of something or or cash in on their rights or something like that. They, they could manipulate the system and bring harm to someone, Job says, no, I haven't done that. Ever. And if I have, let my arm be broken and fall off. I haven't done that. Verses 24 and 25. Finances. If I have trusted in gold or wealth. He's saying, if I have looked to money as the grounds or the source of my trust. If I've placed my trust in my wealth. Then... Then, then let uh, then let things go wrong with me. Proverbs eleven four says, "Riches do not profit in the day of wrath." I still like the NIV language just because of the alliteration with the W's. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Wealth is worthless. Jesus taught again, Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's danger in in trusting in money. We know that's not the source of our security, but yet it's very tempting in in a world that places so much emphasis on it to to lean on it, to trust in it. And in doing so, money can often become uh, an idol. It will take first place or first position in our life. And we're tempted to serve it. Job is saying, no, I haven't done that. I've never done that. Verses 26 and 28, pagan idolatry. If I've gone after pagan religions, idolatry of the sun, the moon, the stars, very common in in ancient times. Oh, there's something bright and shiny in the sky. Let's worship it. It must be a god and not give worship to the one who created the bright and shiny thing. He's talking about superstitions and false belief systems and apparently kissing the hand and and, and doing something like this. That may have been part of a pagan ritual. Job is saying, no, I haven't done that. Never. Verses 29 through 30, rejoicing over an enemy's downfall. If I have rejoiced over the downfall of my enemy, if I have inwardly been celebrating when I see trouble or, or something bad happen to an enemy of mine, um, someone else's ruin or hardship? No, I haven't done that. If, I've never prayed for the life of my enemy to be cut short. I've never asked God to, to 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 bring harm onto an enemy. Again, this is another sin of the mind. This is something Job could have been doing all the time, and nobody would have been able to tell because it doesn't have any external giveaways. And Job is saying, no, I haven't done that. Never. 31 and 32, hospitality. If I have not been hospitable, if i failed to feed people who are in need, if i failed to provide lodging for those who are in need, Job is saying, no, I haven't done that. Verse 33, concealing sin. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart. Now I'm going to come back to that one. Let's just tuck that to the side for a moment. Verse 34 failing to act because you are fearful of the crowd or what other people will say or do. Job says, nope I haven't done that. And then it seems like he's done. In verse 35 through 37 he he walks out and and continues his speech with what I call blameless confidence. Job has just indicated that he is completely innocent through these um, negative confessions and oaths of of innocence and now he, he kind of struts out and says, um, I'm willing to complete an open examination before God. I'm willing to sign off on my testimony. I, I invite my adversary to put his charges, whoever it is, in writing uh, for everyone to see, and then I will give an account of every single one of my steps throughout my entire life to prove them wrong. Like a prince, with confidence, I will walk out and give an account and I will prove innocence against all charges. And then we get to verse 38 and it almost seems like he forgot this one, doesn't it? This almost seems like an add-on at the end because he made all those negative confessions and then he, he made this blameless confidence declaration but now we go back and he mentions one more thing. One more Negative confession and one more oath of innocence concerning land. And Job is saying he's not stolen any of the produce of the land. Once again, he was a very wealthy man. He had more land than he could work himself, or even more land than he could work with his own servants. And like today, those that have lots of farmland and agricultural acreage, they don't always work the land themselves. Sometimes they lease it out to someone else and allow them to farm it. In the ancient Near East, they also did that. They allowed someone else to work the land either for a price or for a percentage of whatever the land yielded. And Job is saying, I have not taken anything unfairly. I have not asked for more than the agreed amount. I have allowed everyone their, their land rights. And I have not committed that sin either. And then the very last verse is the then portion of, of the oath of innocence. If I've done any of this then, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. But I want us to see that this is one of the, this is the last then statement, but it covers more than just this oath about the land usage. It covers everything really from 29 on. If we go back, we see there really hasn't been a consequence phrase Remember I said I followed that formula, if, then. But we haven't had a then phrase since, since way back in 22 and possibly verse 28. So this final oath at the very end of the chapter covers everything from 29 on. Chapter 31 could be summarized by saying that Job is using his last words before what he sees as his impending death to declare and argue his innocence before his friends and God with the strongest language possible. That's what 31 is about if we look at it as far as a self-contained chapter. It is a confirming signpost testifying to the innocence of Job. If you remember back at the very beginning of the book, three times, In the opening chapter, including from the lips of God himself, we heard the description of Job. He is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns from evil. Three times, establishing the innocence innocence of Job. Now here in in chapter 31, we see that confirmed. We see the strongest language possible saying, I have not sinned. It definitively definitively answers the question, is there such a thing as undeserved suffering? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is. When we look at someone's life or we look at our own life and we see pain and suffering or hardship or trouble, we don't have to assume that it's because they did something wrong. We shouldn't assume that it's because they did something wrong. Or to put it in Christian language, it's the Lord's discipline. When we look in our lives or the lives of someone else and we see hardship and suffering and pain, it is not automatically because the Lord is bringing discipline in their life. Now, it very well could be. And it's certainly appropriate to do a self-assessment and ask the Lord in prayer, have I done something that I'm not aware of? Is there something wrong with my life? Often, if God's bringing that level of discipline, then we usually know that what's up. We we know that we've done something to deserve that discipline. But sometimes, maybe there's something lighter, and we have to do a little self-check. But not all the time. It doesn't have to be. In other words, we reject Job's friends and their simplistic view that says, when you see someone and they're experiencing suffering and pain and hardship, well, they must have done something to deserve it. And when we see someone who's who's experiencing blessing and and maybe success and everything's going great in their life, we say, well, they must be doing something right. Not necessarily. We reject that. God often uses suffering and hardship and pain to discipline those he loves, but sometimes we suffer and it's not discipline. God has his purposes his reasons, and he's not obligated to tell us. We can be confident that because God is God, everything that happens in our life is for our good and for his glory. So Job chapter 31 speaks to that. It definitively closes out the argument about Job's innocence, but it also does something else. It's part of a larger immediate biblical context. Remember chapters 28 through 31 Now, if we were to offer up a very simple outline of those chapters, it would look something like this. Chapter 28, Wisdom. Chapter 29, Job's blessed life. Chapter 30, Job's suffering. And chapter 31, today, Job's innocence. Now, in order to see the most out of everything, including chapter 31, I'm going to do a very brief review. Chapter 28, remember, that was all about God's Wisdom specifically God's blueprint wisdom. And we said that refers to, to God's undisclosed purposes and plans. He's not obligated to tell us. and In fact, he does not tell us. It's not for us to know the inner workings of God, the behind the scenes. He's not going to tell us that. He has given wisdom for the rest of us, and that's to fear God and follow his commandments. But you remember the vast majority of that chapter, in fact, pretty much everything except the last verse, was dedicated to God's wisdom, his blueprint wisdom that he keeps to himself. Then we get to chapter 29, Job's blessed life. Yes, it described Job, but it also went beyond Job. Job said his steps were washed with butter or cream. Elders and princes were silent in his presence. His words were met with automatic, universal uh, approval. He helped the poor, the widow, the orphan, the blind, the lame. Men waited for his words like thirsty men waited for water. He referred to himself as a chief and even a king. Doesn't that sound like it might be going just a little too far? Or to put it another way, if we were face to face with Job and he said those words, we might ask him, really? All the people always agreed with everything you said. You helped every widow, every orphan, every blind, every lame person. Were you indeed king over everyone? This over-the-top language that establishes Job's blessed life before his suffering does that, but it also goes beyond a mere description of Job's life in order to point us to Jesus, the Son of God, who before his incarnation was already above all men, who can help all who are in need, one whose words are greater than life-sustaining water, and one who is beyond ruler, chief, or king, because he is eternally God. And we get to chapter 30, Job's suffering. Yes, it described Job, but it also went beyond Job. Job said he became like dust and ashes. He was mocked, spit upon by the lowest of society. But God didn't answer Job when he cried out to him for help. He only experienced darkness and evil. The language in chapter 30, yes, it describes Job's suffering, but it also goes beyond Job by showing us human suffering and forsakenness by God in the extreme. It points us to Jesus The son of God who was rejected by men, who was mocked and spit upon, who cried out to God on the cross but did not receive an answer, who experienced the ultimate darkness as he took the punishment for sin upon himself on the cross. And then finally chapter 31, Job's innocence. Yes, it described his blameless and upright character, but it also went beyond Job. It was just a little too good to be true. Job said that he has never looked at a woman lustfully. He's never walked in falsehood. He's never acted unfairly. He's clothed everyone to, in need, etc., etc. Remember, even the, that one verse uh, back in uh, nineteen, oh, excuse me, eighteen. From my mother's womb, I guided the widow. How is that even possible? To this, we might say the same thing we said to his chapter on his blessed life. We might say, Really? Job, you've never had one impure thought about a woman even fleetingly enter into your mind? The the men in the congregation are going, I don't know if that's possible. A little too good to be true. So we have over-the-top statements about Job's innocence. Job himself, remember, is not claiming sinless perfection. But this language forces the reader to agree that not only is Job innocent of wrongdoing, but it takes us beyond Job to someone who could actually do every single thing that's described perfectly, someone who could actually achieve perfect righteousness. So if we trace the trajectory of these chapters, it would be from Jesus up on high, Jesus incarnate and suffering and all the while maintaining perfect righteousness. And this as a result of the wisdom of God. And if that isn't enough, if, if that isn't enough to see the, the, the type that, that Job is pointing us towards Jesus, if, if that's not enough to see the trajectory, there's one more piece of evidence. Remember when I said, come back to 33? Tuck it away, we're going to come back to it. This is one of Job's claims. He said he was... Did not conceal sin as others do. And if you look at your Bible as a footnote, at least there is an ESB, it says, or as Adam did. Or as Adam did. And I believe that's the correct translation. In the Hebrew, there's a couple words for man. Uh, ish is a man, the word for man or husband. Adam or Adam is the word for Adam. It can also be used for man. But it's Adam. It's in Job 31. And remember how I said the final then or consequence statement of verse 40 covers all the statements from 29 on, including the statement about not concealing sin? Let's put 33 and 40 together and look at what Job is saying. I have not concealed my transgressions as Adam did, and if I have, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. What did Adam do after he sinned? Genesis three eight and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. He hid. He tried to conceal his sin. And what was the consequence for Adam's sin? Genesis three seventeen and eighteen. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. Thorns and thistles, or thorns and weeds. Job compares himself to Adam and says, I have not sinned like Adam did. I have not hidden like Adam did. I have not tried to conceal my sin like Adam did. And if I have, he takes an oath, then let the curse of Adam fall on me. We have no choice but to see Christ in the Old Testament in this passage. Consider the trajectory. In God's undisclosed blueprint wisdom, 28, 28, He purposed to send his son Jesus from on high, 29, who descended to earth and suffered, uh, chapter 30, but while incarnate through his active and passive obedience, fulfilled all all righteousness perfectly and did succeed where Adam failed, chapter 31, so that by faith people who are sinners can be made right with God. This is the gospel in Job. This is the good news. The reason Job's language seems too good to be true is because he is pointing us to the person and work of Jesus. Job is a type that shows us Jesus. Remember we talked about what a type is. A type or typology is elements of Old Testament history that foreshadow the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is a Bible idea. This is not something that you know we invented as we've been studying the Bible. The Bible sees types of Christ in the Old Testament. For example, Romans 5.14, Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. So the Bible itself recognizes that within the Old Testament, there are types, there are elements of Old Testament history and people and their experiences that are intentionally there to point us to Jesus. If, If we indeed view the Bible as one cohesive message from God and if we don't split it up and say well this is the New Testament and that's the Old Testament and and things are really different here than they are here no, 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 no it's one cohesive message it points to Jesus the whole time there's the covenant of works with Adam and then there's this covenant of grace that extends over the entire body of scripture and it goes together Adam was a type. We need to understand the relationship between Adam and Jesus. It's so important. And it's mentioned in Job chapter 31. We need to understand why was Adam a type of the one to come? Why was Adam serving as a type of Jesus? We need to understand that both Adam and Jesus acted as representative heads for the human race. Both of them acted as representative heads. For all people, and we can we can relate to this because we can have uh, an illustration from, from government. Um, let's say um, you live in a town or a city or a village, uh, and you have a city council, and they're there to make decisions on behalf of the of the city. And let's say they decide that Monday is your garbage pickup day, and you don't like that because you'd rather have garbage pickup on Thursday, so you can have a an empty container. For the weekend, because things seem to pile up. You'd rather have it on Thursday and not on Monday. And so you complain and you say, Well, I don't like this. I want mine on Thursday. And the answer you're given is, That's too bad. It's on Monday. And you have agreed to this. And you say, Well, no, I haven't. I say, We have a representative government here. You have had an opportunity to elect these officials that serve on the city council to make decisions on your behalf. And those decisions are binding. And you really don't have a choice in it. Your garbage pickup day is Monday. We understand that, right? We understand that they act on our behalf and those actions are binding. It's the same way with a representative head. In God's spiritual economy, he has uh, purposed that Adam was to be our representative head. And in Adam, we are represented. And in Adam's actions, we are, we are held accountable. We are, we are reckoned under or considered or counted under Adam and his actions. And Adam, of course, sinned. He failed. He did not uphold the law of God. Romans 5.12, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Adam sinned, and of course we add to that sin ourselves, but even if we never added to our sin, which is impossible, but even if that happened, we would still be reckoned as sinners because we're still counted in Adam who is our representative head. That's just the way it works. Yet God promised He would send a champion, another Adam, a second Adam that would succeed where Adam failed and where this second Adam was he would also serve as a representative head. So we have one Adam, the first one, that failed. But God said, I'm sending the second one, and he's going to succeed. And that second Adam is Jesus. In God's timing, according to his blueprint wisdom, he sent his son, the second Adam. He achieved perfect righteousness. He never sinned in thought, word, deed, action. Either sins of omission, not doing what you're supposed to do, or commission, actually doing something that breaks the law of God. He did everything required of man in the law of God perfectly. And then in addition to achieving that perfect record of righteousness, he also willingly went went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sin. And somebody might say, well, hold on, Why, why does Jesus have to die? I was actually asked that question one time. Jesus was such a nice man. Why did he have to die? Couldn't he have just achieved this perfect record of righteousness and then to be taken up to heaven? no. Because we have actual sin that we've committed in our life and he has to pay the penalty for that sin. So there's this perfect record of righteousness and there's this penalty that needs to be paid for sin. We need both. they are two separate things and we need both. That's why Jesus not only lived the perfect life but also went to the cross. By faith we could have our sins forgiven by placing our trust in the second Adam, Jesus we can have his perfect righteousness imputed or credited to us. And this is one of those times where when we hear the good news, we say, wait a minute. We don't have to live a perfect life? No. We don't even have to come close? No. It's by faith? All we have to do is, is, is acknowledge that God is God, repent of our sin and turn to him in faith and we're forgiven our sin and we're we get to receive this perfect record? Yes. It's almost one of those things that seems too good to be true. But if you remember the saying is, if something seems to be too good to be true, it usually is. Usually. Not in this case. When it comes to God freely offering his grace and forgiveness by faith, it's good and it's also true. Instead of something in this case being so excellent that it defies belief, it's so excellent that it invites belief. It invites sinners to come before God and ask for forgiveness. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteousness. That's the relationship between Adam and Jesus. They're both representative heads. One's called the first Adam in scripture, the other one's called the second Adam but the second Adam is also called the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45 Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. You see, Jesus is not only the second Adam, he's the last Adam. There are not going to be any more representative heads sent by God. And this means there are two and only two. Adam the first man and Jesus, the second and last Adam. And every single person who has ever lived is counted or reckoned by God as standing under one of these two representative heads. Someone might ask, well, I think I'm I think I'm under Jesus as my representative head. It doesn't happen by accident. And in fact, our default setting is first atom. There was a, a parent who was creating an account online and they had to create a profile. And so they were setting it up for the first time and they had their, their high school student with them they said, okay, uh, show me what I need to do here. And they, they filled in all the fields, and like an email password, double password, okay. And then they their profile came up and they said, oh, wait a minute, Why, how come my screen, it's just got this gray bar and it's just got this little kind of icon, of a silhouette of a person. Uh, yours, is, yours has a picture of you know, your high school or your, or your friends, and you've got your picture. And they said, that's because you've got the default setting. He said, everybody starts off that way. You have, you have to change yours, and then you get the picture and, and nice thing. But if you don't do anything, it just stays with that blank, gray screen. It's the same thing when it comes to representative heads. We are all born with that blank gray screen called original sin. We're all born with the profile that says under Adam, counted or reckoned as Adam. But to do something, to have that, that profile, to have the salvation that God offers freely through Christ, takes faith. The Bible teaches as long as we're under the headship of Adam, we are dead in our sins, we are headed for hell But the good news of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, is that he calls people to himself by the Holy Spirit. If we stood up and we each took a turn and we each told our story, if we each told how God got our attention, how he saved us, how we came to know Christ, every single story would be very unique. It would be one of a kind. It would be ours. So in one sense, our stories are unique, but in another sense, our stories are all exactly the same. We were dead in our trespasses and God through his word by the power of his spirit called us from spiritual death into spiritual life. Same thing for every single one of us. That's how God operates. That's how we are reckoned not under the first Adam but now under the second Adam. Jesus Christ. So the question really is which representative head are we under? Adam or Jesus. It's one or the other. 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. The message of the Bible, the message of Job 31 and 28-31 through 31 is repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you praise for showing us Jesus, not only in the New Testament Gospels where we see him most uh, clearly in in, in the word of God, in in the words of Christ speaking among his disciples and among those seeking him, but also in places like Job, where we see something that, that forces us to go beyond the original meaning To the greater meaning, the greater meaning of of pointing to Jesus Christ. Father, we understand that there is one way to salvation, there is one door, and that way is faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that not only would we live for our Lord, but we would proclaim him to others, proclaiming him as the way. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.